Well, good morning once again. No, 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 no. Good morning, First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights. We praise the Lord for being here with you this morning, and uh, we won't keep you too long. It took me four to five years to preach through the Book of Romans at our church. You can imagine, I am very detail-oriented when it comes to the scriptures. But this morning, I just want to give you the helicopter view of Romans chapter 12. And so we will not be as detailed, but I believe you will see the significance and the relevance to what is going on in our culture today. I would be remiss if I didn't introduce my wife, Stephanie. She is my wife of 35 years next month. And so we've been together 35 years and uh, she deserves battle pay for being married to me, but uh, she is a jewel. Uh, she's uh, a farm girl from Iowa. Uh, we met in college, and I'll talk a little bit more because that's one of the questions someone asked at the Q&A, how did we meet, so we'll share that with you a little bit. I am a uh, city urban boy and suburban boy. I grew up in St. Louis uh, the first 12 years of my life in downtown St. Louis, Missouri, in the hood, and then we moved to the suburbs. Uh, we uh, were prompted to move because one night, on a Sunday night, very, very clearly, uh, our family was sitting on the couch and uh, my younger brother and my sister were sitting under a big picture window in our living room and my dad had told them to get out from under the window and while about a minute later, the window came crashing in because someone was shooting at the house next door and shot through the front window. And uh, within a month, we were like the Beverly Hillbillies, we moved on up out of there. And we moved out to Florissant, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. And so I've grown up in the inner city, I've grown up in the suburbs, and I went to college in a rural, small country town. I've been around. And so the issue of uh, ethnicity and the diversity is, is a very important subject for me because God has really given me the background to really understand the mindset in an urban context as well as the mindset in a suburban context and the mindset in a rural context. And so it is a passion of my heart, not because my wife is Caucasian, it is a passion of my heart because it's biblical. And so uh, we, I do a lot of teaching and a lot of preaching and speaking on multi-ethnic issues and reconciliation issues as well as just exposing the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ as God has called me to do. Now, normally at our church on Sunday morning, I would have you all stand and I would read the text, but I don't want to bore you by reading the whole chapter. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'll just read the first two verses to kind of prep our mind. It's, it's strange how God works. You read Romans 1.16, and it really is the key to the book. So God has already kind of prepared you for where we're going. So if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word and turn to Romans chapter 12, we shall... Preach the word of God. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's really writing to believers everywhere of all time, and he says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, or some translations say, spiritual service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You may be seated. Father, we just thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the privilege that it is to stand before the people of God with the word of God. We pray, Father, that you will clear all the distractions of worldliness and life and problems and stress from our hearts and our minds and help us to focus and what you have to say to us this morning. I pray, Father, that you will help me to be clear and concise, that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the minds of the hearers, as well as empower the lips and tongue of the speaker. Glorify yourself this morning. Exalt Christ in our presence. Transform us into the image of Christ, more having come to hear than before we came. And we promise to give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. 
I've entitled this message, The Christian's Mindset in a Turbulent World. You really don't need me to take a lot of time to express to you how turbulent and how messed up things are in our world. Inflation, politics, Democrats, Republican, Tea Party, liberals, conservatives, the list goes on. You don't need me to spend a lot of time telling you that there's great divisions among people groups in our world. You live in that world. You live listening to the news broadcast. You live next to people who are confused and angry and upset and divided. I understand that when it comes to the world, but I don't understand that when it comes to God's people, the church. Because we have clear directives from on high in heavenly places, found in the word of God, about what kind of times we would be living in as we go closer to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following tells you what happens when people deny the creator who is God. And what happens when they deny what God has already revealed in him about himself through natural revelation and how God turns them over to depravity three times in that text. And we go through various revolutions of sexual revolutions and mental revolutions and issues where people don't know the right from the left, right from wrong, up from down, backwards from forward. And that's a description of people who have rejected God and what he's revealed about himself in natural revelation. Natural revelation tells you there's a God, but it doesn't tell you who that God is. The Bible, which is the specific revelation of God, tells us who that God is. And it tells us how we gain access to a relationship with that God through Jesus Christ, his son. And that's why there is no salvation in any other name on earth than through Jesus Christ. But I think the church has fallen into the trap of preaching and teaching and focusing on the issues of life and left the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are in Corinth. We are in Ephesus. We're, we are in Colossae. We are in Rome, even though we're in America. Until the church gets right, the world has no light to see in the midst of darkness. Until the church gets right, there is no salt to season the perversion that is in our culture. Now, if you were here Friday and Saturday, I allowed you to be Satan for a little while. Because it's good to think like the enemy so you know how the enemy's thinking so you can know what to do in light of what the enemy is thinking. It's much like sports. You need to study the game film of the opposing team so that you as an offense or a defense can know what you need to do to counteract what they're trying to do. And Satan is trying to cause this unity among God's people because he knows something that we don't understand. God works best in the midst of unity Satan works best in the midst of disunity. And so he's constantly trying to infiltrate the church with false teaching and false ideologies and false beliefs and false truths. And unfortunately, because we don't know God's word, we're not able to discern who's who and what's what. I know many of you are here and you are listening with your physical ears. But have you learned to listen and see with spiritual ears and spiritual eyes? Have you learned to come to church and say, God, even before I hit the door, I'm going to do what I hear. I'm not going to come and take a survey. I'm not going to come and see if I like what the preacher is saying or I don't like what the preacher is saying. I'm not going to come to see 
and so see how I feel about what he's saying. I know that my pastor is going to preach your word and that I will hear from you through the scriptures. So I am making a covenant in my heart and mind before I even hit the door that I'm going to do what you say. Or I'm going to stop doing what you say I should not be doing. Or do you, like many people in the world, take a survey? Compare what the world is saying, what God is saying, then decide you like better what the world is saying and you don't like what God is saying. You may not think that you do that, but I just happen to know based on the scripture that even the disciples did that when Jesus was teaching them. And that's why he gives that great reference in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 24, about the two foundations and houses or lives that are being built on those foundations and the winds and the waves and the storms come. But the only difference in the whole text is one heard and did what he heard and the other one heard and didn't do what he heard. And that determined whether the life stood the test of time. That's not only true for individuals, that's true for churches. That's true for your homes. Are you building on solid rock? Are you building on Christ? Are you building on the word of God so that your life can stand in turbulent times? This text, Paul comes to this text in chapter 12. After having laid out this great doctrinal treatise through chapters 1 through 11 about how we cannot be ashamed of the gospel of God for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and the Greek first. Now, you may not know that that phrase Jew and Greek covers all of humanity. I know we're divided up in all these categories that I can't even keep count of anymore, but in the Bible, there's only two categories. Either you're a Jew or you're a Greek. And both need salvation. Now, that would have been stunning to a Jew because a Jew would have traced their origins back to Abraham. And you know what, they, what Paul says in chapter 4. They believe because they were children of Abraham, they were in. They were good. Just like some of us believe because we're Baptists, we're good. Just because I go to First Baptist Church of Sterling where my pastor preaches the word, I'm good. Just because I'm a certain ethnic group, I'm good. But then Paul pulls down the curtain of their false understanding and says, if you do not have the faith of Abraham, being a descendant of Abraham is not enough. And they would have done like a lot of fundamentals and conservatives do in our day and age. They would have listed all the things that they think makes them righteous. I'm a descendant of Abraham. The Messiah came through our line. We have the law. And so therefore, I'm in. But a Jew is under the condemnation of sin, just like a Gentile or Greek is. The law will not save you. Being a Jew does not save you. Being a part of the right group does not save you. Being a descendant of Abraham will not save you. It is faith in the Messiah. Jesus Christ alone that saves. Everything else condemns a man. And that's why now Paul comes to chapter 3 and says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All means all. So how is it that we're all under sin, but there's people under sin who think they're better than other people who are under the same sin? How can you have an attitude of superiority when we're all under the same judgment of sin and condemnation? And how is it that you had the light shone on you, you realize you're under sin, and you realize you needed a Savior, and you came to Jesus Christ by faith, and then you get in Jesus Christ, and Christ gets in you, and you got some attitude of superiority in Christ. There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. We missed something. 
And then Paul goes to chapter 6 and says, because of what has been done, because God has demonstrated his love toward you in chapter 5, and he has taken his enemies and made them his children and made them his friends, that slaves and slavery of sin is no longer your problem. Because the power of sin has been made inoperative for all who are in Christ, and Christ is in them. So the sinful attitudes, the sinful behaviors, the sinful mindsets that we were once slave to, we are no longer to be slave to, not that we're in Christ. But we're still slaves. I'm sorry about that slave word. Some of us don't like it. It's in the Bible. You were once slave to sins, but you're no longer slave to sin, but you are a slave. Now you're a slave to righteousness. Where sin used to own you and control you and master you. Now righteousness owns you and controls you and masters you. And in that you find freedom. But there's still a struggle, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. That which I know to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I do. And it's just confusing sometimes. Because there's a law working in me that works against me, but there's a new law that works in me, and the two laws battle against each other, the battle of sin and the battle of life, and sometimes I do things I shouldn't do and say things I shouldn't say, and sometimes I want to do and I know what to do and I don't do it, and who will deliver me from this? And he finds great freedom, and we all should find great freedom in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why I warned you about buying into false philosophies like CRT and cancel culture and wokeism because they say that Everybody is not free in Christ because of certain sins that have been done by certain people who looked like them in the past. And anything that contradicts what the Bible says, we don't need to be listening to and preaching and teaching in the household of God among God's people. If God has freed you from all sins... He's freed you from all sins. And if he hasn't freed you from all sins, he hasn't freed you from any sins. But the Bible says we're not under condemnation condemnation anymore. And let me help you out. People will always accuse you of stuff. But if you know your Bible, they can say things and it'll bounce off of you because God has protected you from that. And then he comes to chapter nine, 10 and 11. He talks about how Israel and how through the sovereignty and providence of God, God took Israel's unbelief and he set them aside temporarily and grafted all those who were outside of Christ because salvation and the power of God is not just for the Jews, it's for the Greeks and Gentiles also. So he takes their rejection and he sets them aside temporarily and he grasps all Jews and Gentiles into the tree of Christ. And now the church is both Jews and Gentiles. Jews must come in by the same faith in Christ that Gentiles must come in by the same faith in Christ. And we all come together and make one new man and one new body, one new household and one new church. Now, I know what you say. Dr. Clay, Pastor Clay, that's going to be true when we get to heaven. We'll all be there and I'll be glorified so I won't have all those issues. No, this is for earth. People need to see the unity that Christ provides on earth. Heaven is a done deal. So there's no need for you to exhort to be unified in heaven You ain't going to have nothing to do with that. The challenge is why we are here walking on earth. How do we reflect the unity of the Trinity that Jesus prays about in John 17, starting with verse 20? 
And it starts with our commonality that we have all placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, if Christ has forgiven me for all my sins, then I must forgive anyone else for their sins because I must forgive as I have been forgiven. Hello. You all being quiet doesn't bother me one bit. I'm used to preaching in these kind of environments. We have quiet people in our church. We have some people to say amen in our church. And I will key you in on the amen moments. <laughs> but I hope you're processing and thinking. Because we spend too much time being hysterical about history. And yes, the history is tragic in America. Yes, there was injustice and there is still injustice in America. Yes, yes, yes. But what do you expect when the world is full of sinners? When men are totally depraved and can live out depravity on levels that many of us could not even fathom. Why do you expect them to do what's right when their father is the devil and the devil is a liar and his children is a liar? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. So when we're looking at the news, do we look with spiritual eyes or do we buy into all the philosophy of the flesh? I can tell you why men abuse other men. Sin. And until you get rid of sin, abuses will not stop. The first murder in the Bible happens between a brother and a brother. Because of jealousy and envy, Cain slains Abel. Cain sits on Abel's neck for nine minutes to smother him. Cain shoots his brother because of jealousy and envy because sin has entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Because before that, there was no killing. There was no death. There was no envy. There was no bitterness. There was no jealousy. There was no hatred. See, we live in a turbulent time because sin still reigns. But somehow we think if someone has a title or wears a certain uniform, they should do what's right all the time. As if you do what's right all the time. No, they need a heart transplant. They need a radical change on the inside before they can live right on the outside. They need to be born again from above, not just have behavioral psychology. They don't need sociology. They need Jesus to invade their lives and set up a dwelling place by the Spirit in their soul. They don't need a tune-up. They need a major overhaul. So we should not be shocked that the world is doing what they're doing. What we should be shocked by is that the redeemed of the Lord act too much like the world. That's an amen moment. We're supposed to be new creations in Christ. We're supposed to have a heavenly mindset in an earthly world. We're supposed to be citizens of heaven and not of earth. We're supposed to understand we're sojourners and pilgrims and aliens who are just passing through. This is not our home. But like Christ, who lived in heaven from eternity past. John 1.14 says, and he came and took on human flesh and tabernacled among us. And now we are Christ tabernacling as the body of Christ in the world, reflecting Christ to a lost generation. That's who we are. Anything less is blasphemy against the gospel. The gospel just doesn't make you a little better. It makes you radically different. The gospel just doesn't fix some parts of your life. 
It changes you radically. You are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And God leaves you here in this messed up, confused, chaotic world and say, be me in the world. Now, I got good news for you. You can only be him if he's being him through you. See, Paul figured that out in Galatians 2.20, didn't he? I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, but who's living in me and through me, Christ. Let me free you up real quick. You don't have to live the Christian life. You have to let Christ live his life through you. That's an amen, mom. Some of y'all got that. See, y'all coming along. You're coming along. I'll bring you along. I'll bring you along. The key is God living his life in Christ and Christ living his life in you by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we get our instructions from the manual, the household manual of God's word. So that his people who are his servants, who are his slaves, live according to his household dictates and instructions. And then he equips the church with pastors and and teachers and evangelists and members who work that out while the master has gone away. So that when the master comes back to his house, he finds everything decently and in order. But how do we live in turbulent times? What does it look like to have the right mindset in a turbulent time? Why? Because Satan wants to mess with your mind. This world system wants to mess with your mind. Satan wants to bombard you with his truth, his counterfeit way of life, so that you don't live the authentic Christian life. That brings us to our text. I knew some of you were saying, when are you going to get there? But I got to lay a good solid foundation before we can get into the text. So let's get into the text because our time is quickly running away. There are four aspects of a Christian mindset in a turbulent world I would like to share with you from Romans chapter 12. The first one is fundamentals of transformability of the gospel related to Christian conduct. Look at verse 1 to 2. I beseech you, therefore. Now, I know you guys are good Bible students. I know your pastor. You know the rule. If you see the word therefore, you always ask, what is therefore? And what is therefore is Paul is taking them back to everything that I've taught you doctrinally from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11. Based on that, the most reasonable and logical thing you can do is present your body as a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God. It's only logical. When you add up all God's done in chapter 1 through chapter 11, and you see his mercies and his grace, the only logical conclusion to come to is that I need to present myself as a living sacrifice to God. But I think we treat God's provisions like some of us treat benefit plans we have. We don't even know the details. And we don't worry about it until we really need it. God has demonstrated his mercy in in all kinds of ways by delivering us from sin and delivering us from the power of sin and making us sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's taken Jews and Gentiles and people from every creed and class and culture and ethnic group and brought them together and made them one family. You see, in the early Roman world, in the early world of Corinthians, multi-ethnic congregations and multi-ethnic coming together was just as messy as it can be today. Because people come with different mindsets and different luggage and different experiences and different practices and different ways of this and different ways of that. How do you bring them all together in one place and blend them together so they reflect the oneness in unity while having diversity. People got to have a Christian mindset. They got to have a heavenly mindset. Now, it's amazing to me 
that the Detroit Lions can get all the people from different classes, different cultures, different creeds, and different ethnic to come together in the stadium and focus on one thing, the Lions winning. And there are no race riots while the game is going on. No one's saying, can I change seats because I don't want to sit next to that person because we've all gathered around the throne of the Detroit Lions and we're worshiping the ones who sit in the midst of the field. And we all have one common song that we're singing. Go Lions, go Lions, go. Touchdown, touchdown. You're number one. Yet we come into the household of God and we stay segregated. Separated. That's an amen moment. And you all go over here to your section, and you all go over here to your section, and you all go over here to your section. And we'll root for the team, but let us stay separated. They don't do that down at Detroit's house. Everybody sings the songs and everybody rallies with the cheerleaders and everybody follows the praise and worship team. And everybody's praying for Pastor Goff and Bishop Campbell to have a wonderful day of worship so that we win. It's a mindset they have. It's a mindset they have. And we love the worship service so much, we come early. Y'all call it tailgating. They don't come in just before Sunday school and the service starts. They lining up the gate at 6 o'clock in the morning, game don't start till 1 o'clock. What spirit is driving them? The spirit of the Detroit Lions. And they get in the parking lot and they break bread and they have fellowship and they gather around the Detroit's teachings and they have a merry time. And then they go in for the worship service. And do you know there are people who are praying for overtime? They're not watching their watches saying when they gonna get done. And then the game is over, and you know what they do, like we do in church. We peel out the parking lot. No. We want to talk about how great worship was today. They hang around in the parking lot for another two or three hours. How is it the world can have that kind of commitment to what is temporal, and we don't have that kind of commitment to what is eternal? That's an amen moment. It's a mindset. They're willing to present their bodies as living sacrifices. They're willing to stay there and suffer whatever. And some of them even got the nerves to take their clothes off when it's 80 below. Because they're filled with liquid spirit. And the liquid spirit is controlling them and making them do things they normally would not do. To where they don't even feel the elements anymore. You mean the liquid spirit is more powerful than the Holy Spirit? It's a mindset. Someone has well said the problem with living sacrifice is that they always will go off the altar. You're not dead when you get saved. You've made alive. You've really come alive. You were dead in sins and trespasses, but now you've been made alive in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You are now alive in a way that you've never known life before. And yet we drag our way through the Christian life. The only ones who really know how to enjoy life are Christians. Because we know the meaning, we know the purpose, we understand the reality of life. This is not all there is. But then we come to verse 2. And do not be conformed 
to this world. Don't let this world put its makeup on you. Don't let this world put its ideologies and philosophies on you. Don't think like those who are not of God. Think like those who are of God. And I believe specifically what he's talking about is Jews are no longer to look at Gentiles and Greeks the way they used to look at them before they came to Christ. And Greeks and Gentiles are no longer to look at Jews the way they looked at each other. You are now new creations. So leave all that history and hatred and bitterness out there. Don't bring that up in here. And when you go out there, live like what you learned up in here. Do not be conformed to this world, this world's ideology, this world's hysterics, this world's agenda. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, my wife likes DIY stuff. I can't nail a nail with a hammer. I'm a, well, this is old for some of you guys. I'm a yellow page kind of guy. I need to call somebody for that kind of stuff. For the modern generations, I would be a Google kind of guy, but I'm not a Google guy, so I'm a yellow page guy, so I just go with the illustration. But my wife loves the DI, she loves the project, she loves to fix stuff, she loves to see how things should be arranged. She loves it, she likes to watch the shows where they flip houses. I'm sitting there saying, that ain't real. I tried that. It took me three hours. It took him two minutes. <laughs> but the idea of renewing your mind is a building term. It means to renovate something. In other words, it means to gut the house before you put in the new material. Because if you try to put new material over old material, the old material eventually bleeds through the new material. You've got to get rid of the way you thought when you were unsaved so it doesn't bleed into what you are learning as you are now saved. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, if you come to church, hear the word of God, and leave just like you came in, then you have not been transformed. And your pastor is not just preaching sermons to fill your head with information. We got too much information. There's no transformation. The purpose in you hearing God's word is so that you lead differently than how you came. You come in weak. You lead strong. You come in worried. You leave with confidence. You come in shifting all over the place. You leave here peaceful. Because God met you through his word. You come in angry and bitter and you come leave joyful. You come in confused, you leave clear in mind and soul and spirit. Then you are being transformed. Secondly, the transformed life is a model of humility. The transformed life is a model of humility. Verses three through five, just a survey, we can't get date. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. How are you better than somebody else when you all got in the same way by grace? But the flip side of it is that you are not think less of yourself than you ought. You are to think soberly, meaning to think balanced. You think of yourself the way that God thinks about you. So we need to think more of ourselves than we ought, and we don't think less of ourselves than we ought. We think how God thinks of us. Then you are thinking balance or soberly. So you never think too high, and you never think too low. So therefore, you cannot make me feel guilty because I don't look like you. That's an amen moment. Because I don't come from the same part of town you come from. Because I don't come from the same background you come from. Because I'm thinking balance. I'm thinking of myself as God has described me as his child. As his saved one. But neither can you, Mr. Jew, come in thinking you're better than a Gentile because you are Abraham's descendants either. 
Neither can you, Mr. or Mrs. Caucasian, think you're better than other people groups because everything has been painted white in America. Oh, I just lost you right there, didn't I? <laughs> we all are born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We all have sinned and far short of the glory of God. We all must get out by the same way. So how can anybody think they're better than somebody else? The Bible says, what have you received that you haven't been given? If you have a little bit better house or a little bit better car or a little bit better job, you do realize it's because God kept your oxygen going all night long. It's because God didn't allow you to be in that car crash when somebody else was in the car crash. It's because God allowed you to go to work and come back home over the highway. It's not because of you. So don't think too much about yourself. See, that's why COVID brought some reality to our culture. It showed people their morality, or in, that they're not immortal, that they have mortality and a lack of morality. It showed them that a little virus that you can't see you can't beat. But there's a virus that's worse than COVID. It's called sin. And it's been killing people of all colors, of all creeds, of all generations, of all ages, since Genesis chapter 3. And it didn't take God long to come up with a shot to help relieve you of your COVID symptoms or your sin symptoms. He came up with the cross. And since all of us are sick with sin, and since all of us must look and live by the cross, don't think more highly of yourself and don't think more lowly of yourself than you ought. But think soberly. He says in verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. We don't have time to break this down, but you know you have a human body and they all don't do the same thing. They aren't all designed the same way. So it is true for the people who make up the body of Christ. He's taking Jews and Gentiles. He's taking upper class and lower class. He's taking middle class and he even takes those who have no class. And he plugs them into the body of Christ. And we all are one, even though we're different. At least that's our third point. So much more to say, but we're just giving you the helicopter view this morning. The transformed life is a model of supernatural service. Well, it seems right, though, if you're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, that that means you ought to be serving. As I said to the group Friday and Saturday, the 20-80 rule is not biblical. 20% of the people doing 80% of the work is blasphemy against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a shame and an embarrassment to the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. It's 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Why? Because everybody who's been placed in the body of Christ by the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, has been given at least one gift for the edification and building up of the body. When you're not using your gift in the place that God has put you in the church, you are hindering the work of the body. You, when you refuse to work alongside somebody because you're bringing your worldly understanding to who you think they are rather than who they are in Christ, and you refuse to work alongside of them, you are hindering the body. Leave that stuff out there. Don't bring that in here. And if you're being properly equipped in here, don't be taking that stuff out there that you try to bring in here. Take what you learn in here and take it out there. 
And if we're one in here, don't be going out there and segregating yourself out there. But as I said to the group Friday and Saturday, some of you are scared to have different people up in here. Let me tell you why you're scared. You may never have me back again, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Because you don't want your little cute Cinderella looking at Prince Charming, who may not look like the Prince Charming you want him to look like, to hook up with your little Cinderella. That's the amen moment. Because then they might end up like Dr. Clay and his wife, and you don't know how to explain that at the family reunion. So you would rather your daughter marry an unsaved doctor who looks like you than a saved garbage man who follows Jesus Christ and don't look like you. That's sin all day long. You would rather your child be unequally yoked so that you can brag about the doctor at the reunion who's beating your daughter half to death, mistreating her and cheating on her than a godly man who don't look like you. Oh, why y'all looking at me like that? Just stick with theology. Don't be using illustrations to be in my backyard. Service. We just serve one another. We're to build up one another. You don't have the talents and gifts and abilities you have for yourself. They're for one another. Get involved in your church. Get involved in the lives of the people you're sitting next to and worshiping next to Sunday after Sunday. Get to know them. Go have coffee. Go, you're going to Starbucks anyway. Sit down with someone who's from a different class or a different culture or a different ethnic makeup. Ask some questions, have some conversation, and you might find out that what the lies of the culture has been telling you are not true. But you also may hear and be able to lament over the wounds and hurts that they're experiencing or have experienced. And now we can pray together. We can fast together. You can say, no matter what the world is doing to you, this is a safe place up in here because we're all children of God. Then that leads us to our final point. The transformed life is a model of Christian love. This is verses 9 to 21. I'll just give you the breakdown real quick because we can't really exegete it the way I would love to. In verses 10 to 13, we see the church family dynamics of Christian love. Verses 10 through 13, we see the church dynamics of Christian love. We dealt with this in our workshops and seminars this past weekend. But he says, let us love without hypocrisy in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope because we all have the same hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly his prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's how we love each other. Why? Because we're a family now. You are my brothers and sisters. I am your brother in Christ. I'm not from another family. We have the same father. I am more your family and you are more my family than my family who may not know Jesus Christ, even though they look like me. I am more your family because God is our father than your family that does not know Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of their sin. You will live with them only in the temporal time of earth. You will have to deal with me for eternity. Now I know what you're saying. What part of heaven are you going to be in? We're going to avoid that section. <laughs> We're going to live with you forever. We're going to gather around the throne in Revelation chapter, and we're going to worship the Lamb of God around the throne forever. Your family that looks like you, that don't know Christ, they'll be in another place. So why don't we practice for where we're going? If we're going to be together forever, 
Why don't we practice being together now? Because we're family. Secondly, under this transport Christian love, the social dynamics of Christian. See, some of us have fallen to the trap that we're supposed to love other Christians as if we have the right to hate people who are not Christians. Paul deals with that. Verse 14 to 16. Read it with me, if you will. Bless those who persecute you. What? What? Don't complain about them. Don't point out all the wrong. You mean bless them? Oh, I want to bless them with a gun. I want to bless them with a baseball bat upside their head. That's not blessing. That's revenge. That's anger. That's wrath. You don't have a right to that. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Ooh, I wish I had time. Bless your oppressors. Bless your slave masters. Bless Donald Trump. Bless Joe Biden. Do not curse. First Timothy chapter 2 says we're supposed to pray for those who are leaders. We cursing, we ain't praying. Oh, we talking, but we're not talking to the right person. We're talking about the people. We're not talking to God about the people. You're not praying for Trump's salvation. You're not praying for Biden's salvation. You're not praying for Obama's salvation. You're not praying for Caesar's salvation. You're not praying for Nero's salvation. You're not. Oh, but we bumping our gums, all right. Talking, complaining, slandering. Listen, those men need salvation. Those oppressors, those persecutors, those Pharisees who persecuted Jesus need salvation. Pray to God for their salvation. And then maybe they'll change their policies. Maybe they'll change their character. But they're not going to be changed by us complaining about them and cursing them. Paul is now telling us how to love people who are not Christians. We're not to hate them. We're on a rescue mission. We're to be like Jesus seeking and saving that which was lost. This is the social dynamics of Christian love. He goes on to say in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Sinners need us. We are the ambassadors of Christ with a message and a ministry and a mandate to go into all the world and make disciples. This leads us to our final point under the transformed model of Christian love, the enemy dynamics of Christian love. Look at verse 17 to 21 and we're done. Repay no one evil for evil. Is there any people that you want to get revenge against? Is there any people that if you got in power, that you would make them feel the pain that they made you feel? Then you're wanting to repay evil for evil. I told you 
some of your members on Friday and Saturday that according to statistics based on my dissertation that the population is going to change by 2030 or 2050 where the minority groups will become the majority groups and the majority group, which is most of you in this room, will become the minority groups. And I'm here to warn you based on God's authority that once those minority groups that have been feel like they've been abused and chastised and misused get in power, y'all in trouble because they're going to be seeking payback. I heard this when Obama became president. Unfortunately for some of my conservative brothers I heard it from, that they didn't agree with all Obama's policies. And they didn't necessarily agree with Obama's character. But y'all been in charge long enough, it's our turn. What kind of Christian mindset is that? You want to get in and you will vote for him knowing he doesn't line up with the things of God because he looks like you and you believe you need someone like you in power so that now we can mess it up just like they've been messing it up. Is that a Christian mindset? But I heard that far too much. But what they're saying is we want payback. We want revenge. He says, regard, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. We should be about what is good, not what is about evil. We know why they are the way they are because we used to be the way they were before we came to Christ for salvation. We used to hate. We used to envy. We used to be jealous. We used to be greedy. We used to be alienated from God. We used to hate God. We used to be slaves of sin. We know why they are the way they are. But we also know what they need to fix what's wrong with them. Beloved, verse 19, do not avenge yourselves. Do not avenge yourselves. Do not avenge yourselves. Don't try to be the avengers. You ain't got no superpowers. You can't overcome what's wrong with people outside of Christ. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not your revenge. Not my revenge. But who am I really dependent on? But rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, this is very simple for me as I close this out. I've learned something a long time ago that God can do worse to them than I could ever do to them if I tried to do it on my own. So I'm going to let God deal with them. But I want to be careful not to be like Jonah with Nineveh, wanting revenge so much that I won't go and share the good news with the people because I know God will save them if they repent. And I don't think they deserve to be saved. That is not God's mindset. See, Jonah knew something about his God. God's a forgiving God. God's a merciful God. God's a gracious. God wants men to repent. And he knows if I go and preach the good news of the message of God, they might respond. But he has so much vengeance in his heart that he decided he was going to run away from God. Dummy, God is everywhere present. Where are you going to go that he is not? But that's how blinded we can become by anger and frustration 
and injustice. It's real. But I challenge you this morning to trust the sovereign God of the universe, that he's got this all under control, and that nobody gets away with anything because they have to deal with God in the end. Father, we just thank you. We've just done a survey of this chapter. But we are not what we used to be, therefore we can't behave like we used to behave. We are a new creation. We have a new allegiance, a new trust, a new way of walking and a new way of life. I pray that your word would do its work in the lives of your people. Glorify yourself, conform us to the image of Christ, and we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.